Welcome back, everyone. Today we're going to talk about acute infections. This is lecture number 16. This lecture and the next, we are going to talk about the two main patterns of infection. That's what this is about. There, there are acute and persistent infections. Now, as I've said before, biology is not always black and white. It's always gray. But this is what we do to try and understand patterns, and then there's always a little bit of gray matter, which I'll point out. But here we have a chart which illustrates this idea of uh, different patterns. So we have virus production on the y-axis and time on the x. And then the, the blue line is um, virus production. And the, the red is disease, signs and symptoms. So an acute infection, rapid onset of virus production, uh, a short, limited period of disease, and then resolution. And resolution means you recover, you have an immune response, you recover, uh, or of course, in some cases, you may die, unfortunately. And here are some examples of acute infections, rhinoviruses, rotaviruses, influenza virus. And the rest, there are all different kinds of persistent infections, which we're going to talk about a long time. But you can see the difference is the infections go on for the life of the host. That's the key. They're not always symptomatic. They're not always making virus. But the infections are never cleared. And why that happens, we're going to talk about next time. But today we're going to focus on acute infections, rapid onset of viral reproduction, short but possibly severe course of disease, production of large numbers of virus particles, and eventually immune clearance. Here's a typical course, which a good part of which you should understand already because it illustrates the induction of an immune response. So here we have virus reproduction again on the y-axis, duration. There is no time here because depending on the virus, of course, it could be very, very short or intermediate length. So we have initiation of infection at the beginning, which means the virus gets into you, uh, your innate infectious uh, infect defenses are activated. So the red is um, virus production, right? virus reproduction on the y-axis. And so initially the, you know, the, the, the virus may overcome physical defenses, intrinsic defenses, the innate responses are triggered uh, and those engage and the, the innate defenses are shown here. And then if reproduction continues, you exceed a threshold where you need to have a activation of the adaptive response. And so that's happening in here in this second rectangle. Uh, and then the, the adaptive response eventually kicks in, and that gives you memory. But as you see, uh, the virus starts to decline before adaptive defenses are really at their, at their height. And we're going to see some specific examples of that today. Eventually, virus is cleared or controlled. There are some cases when, after an acute infection, virus may remain. But those are always the exceptions. And then, of course, you have immune memory. A, a hallmark of acute infections are inapparent acute infections. And this means you have a successful infection. A virus gets in you. It reproduces in your cells. However, you have no symptoms and you have no overt disease. Obviously, you have signs. Signs are what could be measured, right? You could measure virus load. You could measure innate responses or adaptive responses. But as far as you're concerned, you're not sick. 
I've been fine the last two years, yet you're making sufficient virus particles to spread to others. And that's the insidious nature of acute infections. Many of them are inapparent, and that is how they spread in the community, as we say. Now, how do we know this? How do we know you're infected and not having disease besides asking you? Obviously, we need some other evidence, and that we do serological surveys. We collect serum from people. We measure antibodies to whatever it is that we're looking for. We're doing that now for SARS-CoV-2. And it's once the pandemic is over, we're going to do it big time to know exactly how many people have been infected because the current numbers are way underestimated. The latest estimate by the CDC is that we're missing one in five SARS-CoV-2 infections, even higher in kids, maybe one in 12, one in 10 or one in 12 in kids. So we need to know and we need to do serological surveys because once the infection is over, of course, you can't look for nucleic acids in most cases. So that's how we know that many viruses cause inapparent infections. And SARS-CoV-2 is no, no exception. About 20% of the infections are inapparent. And this has been clear from the start, although it was, if you read the press, it's widely debated. It is not widely debated. It is a feature of acute infections. These features are characteristic of what I call well-adapted pathogens, like poliovirus. Over 90% of poliovirus infections are inapparent. That's remarkable. And only 1% of poliovirus infections are paralytic. But 90%, you don't even know. And that's how the virus spreads in a population. SARS-CoV-2, probably about 20%. Again, a few studies have been done, but we're going to wait till it's over to get the final number. And it's going to vary depending on what country you're in. Acute infections are major and common public health problems. You know this, influenza virus, noroviruses. One time, poliovirus was a big common health problem. Um, smallpox, which has now been eradicated in certain parts of the world. Dengue, yellow fever. And they affect millions of people every year. This is not the first virus, SARS-CoV-2, that affects millions of people. It's rather routine, and so we don't hear much about it. But you'll see today the, the toll it takes on society. And they're really difficult problems because, and here is the key, in most cases, by the time you feel sick, the infection's already spread and it's probably almost over. Uh, and we'll show you some time courses in, today to uh, substantiate that. Which of the following do acute infections and incubation periods have in common? The virus is not replicating. No symptoms are visible. Immune defenses are engaged. The immune system does not respond all of the above. Most of you picked the wrong answer. B, no symptoms are visible. This requires you to remember what an incubation period is. Uh, which of the following do acute infections and incubation periods have in common? So... During an incubation period, the virus is replicating in both. No symptoms are visible. Uh, it depends in the incubation period. You may or may not have symptoms. So the only one that's correct here is immune defenses are engaged. I'm sorry for being confusing there. All right, so what am I going to do today is go through five different acute infections caused by five different viruses that are transmitted in different ways and talk about them to give you a sense for what is 
an acute infection, what are, what are the components, and how they differ among these viruses. This is our cast for today. Influenza virus, poliovirus, measles virus, norovirus, and West Nile virus. So we have two viruses spread by respiratory roots, influenza and measles, two by fecal oral transmission, poliovirus and norovirus, and the last one, West Nile, by mosquitoes. So let's start with influenza, which, of course, is the disease caused by influenza virus. There are three types of influenza viruses. We call them types A, B, and C. Uh, type A and B cause similar disease. And C, mostly inapparent or mild upper tract illness. C infects nearly everyone. We don't make a vaccine against C because it, it's not serious enough. But the vaccine that you take against uh, influenza contains both A and B types. Only influenza A types cause pandemics. And you know now what a pandemic is, right? A global outbreak affecting uh, many countries. And periodically, influenza A viruses do that. And the last one was in 2009. And they happen every 10, 20, 30 years. So we'll have another. There's no question about it. The hallmark of these viruses is that they undergo antigenic variation, which means the virus changes slightly every year or so, and sometimes we have to make a new vaccine. Sometimes on a yearly basis, but sometimes not. It really depends. And the, this, the viruses are monitored by WHO, by CDC, and local authorities to see how they're changing in both the northern and some, the southern hemispheres. We'll talk more about that during a vaccine discussion. Transmission of influenza is by via droplets that are produced when you talk, when you cough, when you sneeze, and they typically uh, the virus is typically transmitted in the larger and smaller droplets, not these very very small droplets that travel long distances. Although the coughing and sneezing actually isn't needed to transmit, speaking is enough. Remarkably, can also be translated. <laughs> transmitted by direct contact with infected individuals. With You touch your nose, your mouth, your eyes, you have mucus on your fingers contaminated with virus, and then you can transfer that to someone else. And so this is quite clear that this happens because, in fact, with influenza, we can do human challenge trials and we can know exactly how it's transmitted. So the virus enters the, the mouth and nose, the upper respiratory tract, reproduces in the mucosal epithelium and spreads extensively throughout the tract. It may go down into the lower respiratory tract and cause pneumonia in some individuals, primary viral pneumonia or even secondary bacterial pneumonia. And here's an um, expansion of the mucosal epithelium, of course. Virus is entering. It penetrates the mucus. It enters the apical surface of these respiratory cells. And by the way, the mucus is full of Sialic acids, which are the receptors for the virus. And that's one of the functions of neuraminidase to, uh, to chew those away so that the virus can penetrate the mucus and attach to the cell surface. Reproduces in these cells, doesn't get past the basement membrane, doesn't establish your viremia. At least the human uh, types that we know of don't do it. And as I said, in some serious cases, it can go all the way down into the alveoli and, and reproduce there and cause serious pneumonia. Now, as you know, as we've, as we've mentioned before, you have a mucociliary elevator that brings material back up 
from the lower parts of the tract in mucus, and then you swallow that as a way of getting rid of it. So you can find nucleic acids of influenza virus in the feces. It's not replicating in the, in, in the intestinal tract. Now, where does the virus reproduce in terms of the locations of receptors? Remember, sialic acids are the receptors, and it's specific for human influenza viruses. Alpha-2,6 linked sialic acids are the receptors for human isolates. That's how the sialic acid is linked to the second sugar. We talked about that in lecture number five. And alpha-2,6s are all throughout your upper and lower tract, nasal mucosa, paranasal sinuses, your pharynx, larynx, trachea, bronchus, bronchioles. And you see not much alpha-2,3 until you get deeper into the tract. And the avian viruses that bind alpha-2,3, it's not easy for them to infect us. And we think they typically have to be inhaled deep into the lung to find alpha-2,3 receptors. These avian viruses are transmitted from poultry to humans, typically farmers who are taking care of chickens. In many countries, you sleep with your chickens, and so you're inhaling their breath all night, and you inhale deep into the lung their viruses. However, there is one way that avian influenza viruses have been shown to infect the upper parts of our respiratory tract, and that is in the eye. The cornea conjunctiva both have alpha-2,3 sialic acid. So infection can actually initiate in the eye. The virus can drain through this nasolacrimal duct, which brings tears into your nose, and it gets into your nose. The virus goes from your eye to your nose, and then it can enter the tract. Uh, that's been documented on some poultry farms in the Netherlands, that farmers can be infected with avian strains that way in the eye. So uncomplicated influenza, short incubation period, uh, abrupt onset of headache, chills, and dry coughs. Usually you can say, you know, I know exactly when I started to feel sick. You get high fever, myalgias, malaise, anorexia. And what's this? You, you know what's causing that. It's your cytokine response. Influenza-like illness. Uh, you get a peak of fever, fever within 24 hours, and then it starts to go down and actually goes away by day six. But then you, your cough actually begins to intensify. You, you have a dry Cough initially becomes more productive, meaning you're coughing up mucus as your respiratory tract is trying to clear dead and dying cells. And this can often persist for, for one to two weeks. But as you'll see, the virus is gone by then. The virus really wrecks your respiratory tract cells. And in fact, cytotoxic T lymphocytes do a job because they're the ones that clear infections. They kill infected cells and you have a while to recover from the damaged cells, you often have a substernal pain after influenza, right, beneath your sternum, and that's because of the respiratory damage caused by CTLs. Now, how do you diagnose influenza? Most of the time you go to your provider and they look for influenza-like illness, which means fever, cough, or sore throat. And if it's here in New York in the winter, they say you have flu and I'm going to give you a prescription. Now, of course, this year it's, it's different because there's not much flu around, but in most normal years, this is what they would do. They could give you a rapid antigen test, but they're not very good, and uh, it's better off for them to do it symptomatically and give you a prescription because we do have some antivirals. You can do PCR if you'd like. It's going to take a little bit longer, but and, and nobody does viral culture anymore. But you can do serology, of course, but that's going to be later on. 
So if you want your your symptoms alleviated, your doc in the right season is going to give you a prescription for an antiviral. So let's take a look at the time course of infection. So here on the left is a experiment where volunteers were infected with uh, influenza virus. Now you can you can infect people with influenza virus who've been vaccinated already, so they don't get very sick, but the virus will still reproduce in them. So we're looking at viral titers from the nasopharynx over time. So we inoculate them here, and you can see viral shedding, the black dots goes up by two days at peaks, and the symptoms are not far behind. Uh, total symptom score, you know, uh, cough and all that mucus production, start peaks about a day after the, the virus peak, and then they both go down at about the same time. So this is an acute infection, really quick, and shedding pretty good before you probably even feel very sick, so you're infecting other people. Here's another experiment, again, a challenge. A few more data points. We have infection at time zero, and we have the peak of virus here. Two days, look at that, after challenge, same thing, separate study, same result. And we have a peak of interferon more or less about the same time. Virus rapidly declines after that peak. It's really gone in this case by day six. And here's your febrile illness, right, from about day one through day six or so. And I like these curves here. This is nasal wash, uh, neutralizing antibody serum, antibody to one of the glycoproteins, and serum neutralizing antibody here. Do you think these have any role in resolving your infection? I don't think so. <laughs> They're barely getting going by the time the infection is over. So I think this is cleared mainly by intrinsic and innate defenses. Now, you make an antibody response, so you're going to have memory. You make CTLs. But I think they are probably too late to, to do very much unless your infection progresses. Now, influenza is a really classic seasonal disease and we, we collect a lot of data globally on influenza virus. Many laboratories, here they are, the WHO, NREVSS, collaborating laboratories, they all send samples to central labs and they look for influenza virus to try and figure out what's circulating so we could be ready next year. And you, you can see these peaks of uh, illness. We have type A, H3N2, H1N1, those are two subtypes. And then we have B. And then just percent positive. You can see it's peaking. These are weeks of the year. So it's peaking in the winter in temperate climates every year. And this would just go up to 2007. I picked this. It's old, but I couldn't find a more recent one to illustrate this nice seasonality of just isolation of virus. So that's it. Here in between, there's a little bit of virus. You know, a few people, and these are number of isolates here and percent positive. There's, there's always a little bit of influenza, even over the summer. Uh, but then big time explosion, uh, typically in the wintertime. Now, a couple of questions here. Yeah, I had a doctor tell me I have viral syndrome. Yeah, that's because they don't know what you have. If it's winter and you have cough and fever, it's flu. If you take an antibody test and you're vaccinated, will you test positive? Yeah, because the uh, the vaccines are mainly whole virus, so you get antibodies to everything. I've heard of people in the trials getting antibody tests to see if they get the placebo. Yes, yeah, some people do that. For SARS-CoV-2, you have to write, get the right antibody test, right? Because most of the vaccines are spike-based, and if you don't get a spike antibody test, you know, there are N-protein antibody tests out there. That's not very useful. Do influenza vaccines prevent asymptomatic transmission? Yeah, they do. They, they don't prevent infection. You do get infected. But you don't shed enough to transmit. 
but you will be infected. Because think about it, your serum levels go down after an infection or vaccination. So then you get infected, your memory response kicks in, but it takes two days to get that nice memory response. And already, you saw it, two days, the virus is already peaking. So it can limit, it prevents disease. The flu vaccines prevent disease, but you still get infected. Speaking of serology tests, we'll do when the pandemic's over, how we differentiate people who've been infected versus vaccinated. You do... Um, could do spike antibodies versus N antibodies. The N antibodies only come from people who are infected and the spike is from both. So you can get an idea of who's been vaccinated and who's been infected. Now, it's not easy to figure out how many people have had influenza. So the CDC makes estimates because you don't diagnose everyone. You never do. You never diagnose everyone for any viral infection. And so here are the estimates for the 2019-2020. That's last year. Because this year there's like nada, zip. It's amazing. So here they estimated from October through April, it's roughly the flu season, uh, between 39 and 56 million illnesses, medical visits, uh, hospitalizations, and between 24,000 and 62,000 deaths. And this, of course, th this is somebody's somebody, right? Somebody's brother or sister or mother or father, family member. But nobody pays any attention to it. And every year you have this burden. And apparently people are okay with that, right? People meaning the news, they're okay. They don't want to report it. It's not news, I guess. And so here's why these are estimates. Influenza surveillance does not capture all cases. You know, they make these statistical uh, estimates based on weekly data. And there's a wonderful site which uh, has been at the bottom of these slides, flu weekly, basically. You can go, and every day they have data on flu. Well, as I said, this year there's not much data. So here are some of the graphs they do. And as I said, in the U.S., they have an amazing surveillance system. Here we have influenza positive tests reported to the CDC by U.S. public health laboratories. That's last year's season. And you see they're typed according to A or subtype of A or B. And B is, is, has different lineages, uh, which you can see here. But the, the point is, is that, you know, it's going up in the fall. It peaks in the winter. Uh, that's like uh, 2020 week six, right? Peak roughly. And then 2020 week 14, it's over. Here's a positive test reported by U.S. clinical labs. So that's a different kind of laboratory. Similar kind of peak, right? Uh, in the winter and then gone by the spring. Uh, in this graph, we're looking at pneumonia and influenza mortality. So the, the, the you have you have you can't often tell if people have died from influenza because they don't they don't write on the death certificate influenza. They they may write pneumonia. Sometimes they'll write pneumonia secondary to influenza, and that's great. But they don't always do that. So you have to make estimates. So here are estimates of. It's called P&I, pneumonia and influenza mortality. And this is for every year, right? And there's there's this statistically predicted epidemic threshold, the two black lines, you know, the high and the low. And it cycles with the virus. It's seasonal, right? And then red is what actually happened that year. So we see in some seasons, the P&I deaths exceed what we think it should be. Some seasons a lot more. Right, so here that that you know, some years a, a virus, uh, a variant isolates circulates that's a little more virulent than other years, so you get more death. But there are other things that can cause this as well. 
And last year was not very virulent as things go. Now, last the 2019-2020 season, you can break it down by state. Yeah, influenza-like illness, ILI, right? That's what I told you originally what the doctors look for. That's the activity level high. You know, the reds and yellows are high, moderate, low, minimal. So here was, I think, in March of uh, 2020, you know, many states still had high activity and some states had low. And uh, here on the lower right, I put in this year's uh, map for this week. We're in March, right? Same month. Nada. Look at that. Minimal activity throughout the U.S. This is the site where you can find all this stuff. Really good stuff. And we suspect that masking and distancing and all that stuff has really knocked down influenza activity. I'll be interested to see the the final numbers on predictions of uh, death and so forth. Uh, It's not easy to tease out because COVID causes pneumonia deaths, so it's going to be hard to separate those two. And finally, uh, another metric is percent of hospital visits for, um, well, outpatient visits, I should say, for influenza-like illness reported by this network, the Outpatient Influenza-Like Illness Surveillance Network, and this is for all different seasons. And so you can see, you know, each season has a different color here, and some season it's more people going to the hospital or outpatient visits. And the gray is the last pandemic, 2009-10, right there. You see a lot of visits. And also, it was not synchronous with the other. So this is all peaking in the winter here. And this one started actually in the end of the summer. It was really weird. But, you know, here we are in 2019-20. That was last year. It was, it was a reasonably severe year. You could see the red line here. And some years, like the orange is 2015. That's pretty mild. And some below the, the, the threshold, the baseline. So we, we monitor this in many different ways. And and from year to year, it can be higher or lower. So someone's asking in that in that seasonal graph I showed you, why is one year higher? Some years are higher, some are lower. It may be the virus. It's, it may be people's behavior and a mixture of the two. Uh, influenza causes complications. Uh, you can get pneumonia as the virus goes down into the lung and destroys cells. You can get secondary bacterial pneumonia, which you, you recover from the viral illness, and then suddenly bacteria begin to reproduce, and they cause pneumonia as well. Muscle pain can have cardi- in- cardiac involvement because as you're laboring to breathe, it puts uh, stress on your heart, and if you're not in good shape, that can cause problems. And then um, a syndrome called Rye syndrome, which involves encephalopathy and liver damage, Probably not having to do with virus reproduction directly, but immune responses. We have antivirals and vaccines. All right, so you can go to the drugstore and get lots of over-the-counter stuff that probably doesn't do anything, but it might make you feel better. Uh, Or you can get prescribed antiviral drugs. We have a bunch, as you can see here. There's Tamiflu, uh, Tamiflu, Relenza, and uh, and all right, Tamiflu and Relenza are both neuraminidase inhibitors, and we're going to talk about them later on. Tamiflu you take orally. Uh, Relenza is inhaled. Uh, Romantidine is a uh, um, entry inhibitor that we don't use much anymore because there's widespread resistance, and this is the latest uh, antiviral that was approved. So it's an inhibitor of the viral endonuclease. You might not remember lecture six, but... The endonuclease is needed to cut the cap off of host cell RNAs, mRNAs, so that it can be used as a primer. And this was developed to inhibit that. 
problem with these is if you don't take them within a day or two of, of symptom onset, they will not do you any good. So the day you feel not well and you go to the physician that day, you get a script, you take it right away. Otherwise, it's not worth taking because it will not do any good if you take these later. It's a, it's a rapid illness. I mean, ideally you would take it before, but you can't just keep taking Tamiflu all winter. That's a recipe for resistance. And we have vaccines. We have lots of vaccines, and we'll talk about those in the vaccines lecture, as we will also talk about the antivirals in um, more detail. Next question is, which of the following is characteristic of uncomplicated influenza? Transmission may occur via respiratory droplets. Incubation period, one to five days. Fever peaks within 24. Coughing and weakness, two weeks, all of the above. So someone asked, is romantidine the same class as amantadine? Yeah. It's the, it's the channel inhibitor, blocks the protons from getting from the endosome into the virus particle. And almost every influenza isolate from people is resistant because it was abused for many years. In fact, farmers would feed their pigs romantidine so they would not get flu because it can wreak havoc on pigs, you know, makes them not grow, and that's not good for a pig farmer. So they put it in their feed, and that made widespread resistance, which now we are paying the price for, right? Because we can't use it. All right, so this is good. I guess the question is better phrased. This is all of the above. This is all correct. Talk about measles. Measles is caused by measles virus, which is a member of the family Paramyxoviridae. It's an envelope virus with a negative strand RNA genome. It has in the envelope couple of spike proteins, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase and fusion protein. And the uh, RNA is a nucleoprotein, right? Because this has to have a polymerase in it, in the particle to bring into the cell. There's an electron micrograph, beautiful EM. You can see the helical nucleocapsid. And this is one of the most contagious human viruses. The R0 is 15. One person on average can infect 15 others. There's one viral serotype and... Infection gives you lifelong protection against disease, as does the vaccine. We've never had to change the vaccines. There's no antigenic variation. Transmitted by respiratory droplets and aerosols, those tiny ones that go long distance. This virus can be transmitted in those. So I used to say to my class, uh, all the people in the back, you know, 50 feet away, if I had measles, you could get infected. You could go that far. And uh, you were shedding for a couple of days before the rash, which is really the time when you know you have measles, back in the day when we had a lot of measles, here in the U.S. anyway. And almost everybody shows signs of disease. There's not a lot of asymptomatic infections here. This is a fascinating pathogenesis. So you inhale the virus, replicates in your upper tract mucosa, breaches the basement membrane, and then establishes a viremia. And that brings the virus to multiple organs, including the skin, right? It's how you get the rash. And can also get into your brain. You can get encephalitis. Uh, but the way the virus gets back out is really interesting. Now, there are no receptors on the mucosal epithelial surface, the apical surface. This virus infects immune cells that are in the mucosa. And the immune cells go across the basement membrane and, and establish the viremia. This virus likes to reproduce in various lymphocytes. And then towards the end of the disease, uh, the virus is, is in the blood. There's a primary and a secondary viremia. 
And uh, so here, here's that illustration. Here's virus. It's got into uh, an immune cell there, and the immune cell is bringing it into the blood. And then later in infection, infected cells are traversing the basolateral surface of the respiratory epithelium. There's actually a receptor on the basolateral surface for the virus. It's called nectin-4. Virus binds to it, infects the epithelial cells, and is shed apically. It's really interesting, right? Because there's no apical receptor, but there's a basolateral receptor, and that's how we shed it, because it replicates through the epithelium and gets into the lumen of the tract. So here is the time course. Here is your incubation period, you know, your primary and secondary viremia, about eight days, your prodrome um, before the rash. So the prodrome is the time before the characteristic symptoms, which is the rash here. And then uh, during the rash, you're, you're still shedding virus and you're making antibodies and then eventually recover. See, it's 21 days. This is substantially longer than influenza, right? Still a respiratory, uh, sorry, still an acute infection though. Uncomplicated measles, high fever, uh, respiratory system, runny nose and cough, sometimes conjunctivitis. Uh, Coplic spots are quite common. What this is, is in the mouth, in the buccal mucosa. So these are teeth, right? That's tongue, <laughs> in case you can't tell. This is the side of the kid's mouth. These little white spots, they're called coplics. That's where virus has infected the mucosal epithelium and has caused syncytium formation. If you took a little scrape of that and looked under the microscope, you would see syncytia, giant cells with lots of nuclei. And that, in the old days, you'd say, yeah, you have measles, of course. If you have a rash like this, quite clearly measles anyway. It's from face to extremities, the rash. But we do get complications. Encephalitis, one in a thousand kids. That's a lot. It's a lot of kids. And these kids can have issues the rest of their life. Not good to have virus in your brain. Bronchitis, pneumonia, ear infections as well. You know, in the U.S., before vaccine, the fatality was one to two per thousand. And that's why we made a vaccine. But in countries with poor nutrition, as I told you, can be up to 30% fatality. There is a long-term sequelae called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which we'll talk about next time because it, the virus sticks around, although it's not infectious, but it's sticking around in kids' brains. And, you know, 10 years after they had measles, they die of a progressive neurological dysfunction. It's very rare, one in a million, but uh, some, the virus is persisting in some way in nucleic acid form that we don't understand. And of course, uh, the virus causes immunosuppression, and that leads to secondary infections. The main cause of it's the main cause of death in third world children. I showed you this slide last time, but I want to show it to you again because it's so important. Measles erases immune memory. This is an experiment where thousands of uh, pathogen peptides were put on slides, and then antibody serum from uh, unvaccinated children before and two months after infection were used to say how many. Epitopes are still there. Measles infection caused elimination of between 11 and 30, 73% of the antibody repertoire. And that's because the virus infects B and T memory cells and plasma cells. So you have an eraser of immune memory. It does come back, but you know if you've been vaccinated and your immune memory is erased, you need to be revaccinated. And it's hard enough to get vaccinated in underdeveloped countries as it is. So I need to vaccinate people. Now, in the U.S., before the vaccine, we used to have three to four million cases of measles a year. I had measles as a kid. There was no vaccine. It, the vaccine came out in the mid-60s. 
that I had measles. I remembered it. Everybody used to get measles, measles and mumps and rubella. We used to have 500 deaths a year, 48,000 hospitalizations, 1,000 chronic disabilities a year in the U.S. from encephalitis. That is a big healthcare burden. So we introduced the vaccine in the 60s and we stopped endemic transmission in 2000 in the U.S. We use now the this trivalent vaccines, measles, mumps, rubella. They're all they're three infectious attenuated viruses. We'll talk about those in the vaccine lecture. Unfortunately, in 1998, a British gastroenterologist, Andrew Wakefield, claimed that um, these, this vaccine caused autism, and that led to people not wanting to use the vaccine. And his paper was wrong. It was retracted, but it did the damage. And to this day, people, some people believe him. Uh, the vaccine does not cause autism. It does not do anything wrong to people except prevent measles. Yet people get together in communities and decide they're not going to vaccinate their kids. And they use their religion as an excuse to explain their fears. And I always say to people, "Tell me, show me where in your religious codex it says you can't get MMR vaccine. Of course, it doesn't. But here, for example, in a, in a Orthodox Jewish community in Rockland County a number of years ago, the community doesn't immunize itself against measles because the head rabbi says it's not good for you, it's bad for you. So they listen and you have big outbreaks of measles and the kids suffer in the end. The kids can't make their own decision and they suffer. Not really fair. This guy, he's at fault. He lives in Texas. He still promulgates this nonsense. He's a big anti-vaccine guy. So here's the, what happened after vaccination. These were the cases per 100,000 in the U.S. per year. Vaccine introduced mid-60s. We were able to eliminate uh, endemic circulation, but there are always pockets of people who don't vaccinate their kids, and then the vaccine typically imported from other countries where there's significantly more circulation. So depending on the year, we can have a lot of cases. 2019. 1,200 cases, mostly in Rockland County, in that unvaccinated community. Not a lot in 2020, right? That's good because people weren't contacting each other. But you can see in other years, there's we should have zero. There should be zero measles cases. And people make excuses for why they don't want to take the measles vaccine. It's an excuse because it does nothing but good. Now, the rest of the world has a lot of measles. And this is a yearly chart of measles cases by WHO region, right? The WHO divides the world into regions like Africa, Americas, Eastern Mediterranean, Europe, Southeast Asia, Western Pacific. And they're all colored here. And you can see in some years, there are big peaks of measles. In 2019, there were almost half a million cases globally reported. I'm sure there are more than that. And this is not fair to the kids to let them have measles. Many countries cannot afford immunization, so we really should be helping them. Uh, in, in, in So far, I think last year, 2020, the top 10 countries with measles, Yemen, Tanzania, Tanzania, sorry, India, Nigeria. And it was low last year because of COVID, but in other years, it's even more. These are the countries with uh, measles. So zero would be clear. So some countries don't have any measles. It's great. But, you know, the U.S., has between 100 and 1,000 cases. That's ridiculous. There should be no cases here. And, and you see South America has a lot. China has a lot. India, parts of Africa. 
And this year, because of a pandemic, 41 countries have put off their measles campaigns. And that's going to make measles worse next year. Real problem. This is not this is not a good infection to get. So we have two issues. We have vaccine anti-vaxxers and we have countries who can't afford it. And we should really be helping them. Which of the following is a good reason to get measles vaccine? There's one in a thousand chance of acute post-infection encephalitis, a one to two in a thousand chance of death. Each infected person spreads the virus to 15 others. Immunosuppression can lead to secondary infections, all of the above. What's the difference between uncomplicated and complicated infections? <laughs> An uncomplicated infection is where you get the standard signs and symptoms. So for influenza, you know, fever, cough, runny nose, mucus, within seven days, it's over. That's uncomplicated. Uncomplicated, you get secondary bacterial pneumonia a few days later. You get SSPE with measles. So the complications are beyond what the standard course is. So all of you got the right answer, mostly 97%. All of the above, each of those is a good reason. Encephalitis, death, spreading to others, and immunosuppression. I want to talk about polio. Poliovirus, which causes poliomyelitis. It's a uh, acosahedrally assembled particle with a plus-stranded RNA genome in it. And it's about 30 nanometers in diameter. The pathogenesis is you ingest the virus through fecally contaminated material, particularly kids. Very common to do that. Um, virus proceeds through the stomach. It's resistant to low pH to uh, all the proteases that are there. Ends up in your intestine and multiplies in the mucosal epithelium. Shed in very high numbers into the lumen, into the feces. Huge numbers per gram of feces. Also, at the same time, the virus breaches the basal lateral membrane, can get into the blood and establish a viremia. Only 1% of infections leads to invasion of the virus to the spinal cord and brain. And that can happen directly from the blood, right? There are capillaries, capillaries throughout the spinal cord and brain. The virus can traverse those. Or uh, we think in some cases the virus is brought to the muscle. By the blood, it enters the motor end plate the nerve ending in the muscle and travels by retrograde transport up to the motor neuron in the spinal cord and eventually gets up into the brain. You get paralyzed when you destroy enough neurons to that innervate a particular muscle. And polio is typically a lower limb paralysis, which I think reflects the, uh, the, the entry of the virus into the gastrointestinal tract. In the spinal cord, this is an example of what the virus does. This is actually a section of a transgenic mouse from my laboratory. Remember, we made transgenic mice that produce the polio receptor. They can be infected and develop paralysis. And there's a section of cord, lumbar cord, from a mouse that had been paralyzed a few days after infection. And it is stained for viral RNA. These green dots are showing you where the virus is reproducing. Those are neurons. You can tell they're big and they're pyramidal. Uh, and all the other cell types are not infected the astrocytes and the glial cells, probably because they don't have receptors. For some reason in the spinal cord, only the neurons, well, this is a mouse, a transgenic mouse, but even in humans, only the uh, the neurons have receptors for the virus. All these other dark cells, now these are immune cells that have come in, they're trying to clear the infection. But, you know, you have enough virus destruction of these neurons and you get paralyzed. There's a lovely neuron there with, with uh, axons and dendrites full of uh, viral RNA. Uh, this is a wonderful course of infection from a 1950s textbook of medicine. By the way, 
your textbook of medicine, those of you who go to medical school, will not have any mention of polio or very little. It certainly won't have multiple chapters as textbooks in the 50s used to. It was a major disease of children. And I love this is hand-drawn. This, this is how we used to make figures. We didn't have computers. Here we have exposure. This is put together from monkey and human data. Then we have uh, temperature, uh, virus. Um, we have antibodies and more virus here. And then we have um, virus in the central nervous system. So we have a little incubation period, right? And then the temperature spikes. And you have headaches, sore throat, and nausea. You have no idea what's causing it, right? Most kids get well. 99% of kids get well. And during this period, look, we have virus in the feces. So infecting other kids for a long time, for almost a month. And virus in saliva and virus in the blood. There's your primary viremia. But no virus in the CNS yet. So then in 1% of the kids, you have continued um, incubation, then a huge spike in temperature here, headache, nausea, and that's where you get your paralysis here because you see now the virus is in the CNS. Again, that doesn't happen with everyone. That happens in 1% of cases, and I'm sure you would like to know why. We don't know why. My theory is the kids who get paralyzed have a defect in innate immunity. And it would be really easy to study by looking at SNPs by GWAS of kids who got polio, right? We still, they're, they're still around. We could get their blood and do it, but nobody's interested. Actually, I shouldn't say that. There's a group in Denmark who's, who's done it. And, and I think they're going to continue uh, after the pandemic. But so far, no, no clues. Um, pathogenesis, we're the only reservoir of this virus, fecal oral transmission. It's, uh, it's a seasonal disease. It peaks... In the U.S. in the summer, there's a, a one complication called post-polio, where 30 to 40 years after you may recover, 20 to 5 to 40 percent of people uh, be, lose their limb function again. So you can be, you can recover, you can get physical therapy and walk again without crutches or wheelchair. And many people, then they lose their ability to walk again because they're, it's not an infectious process. There's no virus anymore, but what happens is the virus... It destroys a lot of neurons, so you don't have a backup. As you age, neurons die, and normally it wouldn't matter, but if you've already lost a lot from polio, then you get paralyzed. And so that's what post-polio is. How did they know there were viruses in the feces in 1950? Plaque assay. Plaque assay was developed uh, in the early 50s. This is what happened in the U.S., 1940 to 1990, so the virus, uh, the polio as an epidemic disease appeared in 1900s, and then it peaked in the 50s, the baby boomers after World War II amplified the number of cases here. And in the 50s, we introduced an inactivated vaccine, and then in the 60s, a uh, attenuated replication competent vaccine. And the last uh, case of uh, polio in the U.S. was 1979. In fact, we're on the verge of eradicating this globally. Um, which I'll show you in the in the vaccine lecture. And now I want to talk about gastroenteritis. And here's a fact that was given to me by a Stanford University gastroenterologist. In any 24-hour per period, about 200 million people in the world have gastroenteritis, which means vomiting and diarrhea. And the amount of diarrhea water they pass equals the volume of water passing over 
Victoria Falls in one minute, which is 65 million liters. It's a lot of diarrhea, folks. Mostly viral. I think this is just possibly the greatest factoid I know. And most of the diarrhea is caused by norovirus, a small RNA-containing virus, positive-stranded RNA, um, roughly the size of polio. And it's responsible for about half of all foodborne outbreaks of gastroenteritis, 48 million cases per year in the U.S. So here's the breakdown. Norovirus in blue, most of the cases of foodborne gastroenteritis. And then we have bacteria and other things. Only 18 particles are enough to make you sick. <laughs> I like this slide because how do we know 18? Because they actually feed people. Uh, different amounts of neurovirus. This is one of those viruses you can feed people, you can challenge them because you don't die. You just have gastroenteritis for a couple of days. I think I told you, you can do, uh, this is typically done in medical schools. They Friday, they infect medical students with neurovirus and they, they can sample them all weekend as they're vomiting and having diarrhea. Then Monday, they can go back to class and they get $300 for that. So I called neurovirus a two-bucket disease right? Because you have vomiting into one bucket and diarrhea into the other. Two bucket. There are not a lot of two bucket pathogens. This is one of them. Fecal oral spread. And uh, just like polio, the virus, you, you ingest the virus, you know, typically in contaminated food, but there are other means. It retains infectivity through the stomach, infects the mucosal surfaces and causes blunting of villi in the proximal jejunum. So here are nor here's normal villus and here is neurovirus-infected blunting. But we don't know why we have vomiting and diarrhea. We still haven't figured that out. For rotavirus, you may remember, there's a toxin that uh, causes diarrhea. For years, people could not grow neuroviruses in cell culture. And then it was learned that you need bacteria for, for it to grow. The blunting of the villi is temporary. You know, the, the whole... Epithelium turns over every five or seven days, so that's not a problem. And uh, what what they used to do is take stool or diarrhea from people who were infected, and they would filter it in the laboratory to remove bacteria, and then they put it on cells, and it would never grow. And some, one day, someone forgot to filter it, and it turned out if you leave the bacteria in, then the, then the virus grows. So here is PCR for measuring genome replication over time in cells. These are B cells in culture. And if you filter to remove the bacteria, it doesn't reproduce it. If you don't filter it, so bacteria in your gut allow neurovirus to infect cells. And we, we believe that uh, the bacteria allow attachment of, of the virus to uh, epithelial cells. And in the, um, the gut, so here is your intestinal epithelium. There's the gut lumen in blue. There's some bacteria in, in blue rods there. And uh, the neuroviruses are, and there, there's murine neuroviruses, which people study in the laboratory, and then there's human neuroviruses, both on this slide. Uh, but the idea is that the, the bacteria have carbohydrates that bind the virus and perhaps get them across the uh, epithelial surface into underlying cells. And we, we believe that the virus infects intestinal epithelial cells. Um, they're, they're somewhat rare cells throughout. Uh, the, the epithelium, macrophages, dendritic cells, and T cells. And, uh, and in vitro, you can demonstrate that the virus infects B cells as well. But again, you need a, a gut microbiome to um, 
be infected. Uh, then the virus gets in the underlying tissues, like lymphoid cells here, and reproduces and causes the diarrhea by mechanisms that we don't understand. So this is a fecal-orally transmitted infection. It can also be transmitted by aerosols when you vomit, contact with contaminated surfaces, food, water. You know, if you eat raw shellfish and the shellfish is in water where you're dumping sewage, you know, the shellfish will take up the virus from the sewage and then you eat it raw. Good reason not to eat raw oysters, and although they're delicious. I stopped years ago. Uh, raspberries too. If you wash food with contaminated water or if the food handlers are shedding, there's a lot of asymptomatic infection here. That can infect you as well. Brief incubation period, sudden onset of vomiting and diarrhea, stomach pain, pretty quick illness, yeah, two days over the weekend. And about 30% of people are asymptomatic. So a lot of food handlers are infected and shedding. They go to work, they contaminate the food, and you have an outbreak. It's a common way. Shedding peaks uh, a few days after illness onset and may, may persist for a, quite a long time. So that's that's a good way to spread it. And you get immune, but apparently you can get reinfected. There seem to be other uh, strains circulating out there. There are a number of different antigenically different strains. Also, you need um, mucosal immunity to protect you, and that wanes very rapidly. Now, what that means for a vaccine is not clear, uh, and people are still working on a vaccine. Uh, humans are, are probably the only... Uh, reservoir, although there's some evidence that the virus can infect some non-human animals. Affects all ages of people year-round, but it peaks in the cold weather. Outbreaks often occur in semi-closed environments. What is that? Nursing homes, hospitals, cruise ships, military, schools, recreational activities, anything where people get together. And we're doing that more and more. Right? Daycares, we do that all the time. We never used to do that. What's the treatment? Well, keep hydrated. That's it. If you if you can drink uh, or give fluids, you'll be good. Uh, as I said, rarely fatal. Uh, there's a vaccine in development. And the deaths that we see is mainly in children where you cannot hydrate them easily, easily, sort of like rotavirus. So we'd like to have a vaccine for this. Here are the different ways that these infections or, or the viruses are transmitted. These are various settings. And we have our retirement centers, nursing homes, hospitals, restaurants, catered meals. You know, it's probably good that you can't go to restaurants these days because you're staying, you are you don't have norovirus or influenza virus. Schools and daycare centers, cruise ships. Cruise ships get a lot of publicity, but they're only about 10%. And most of the transmission is person to person, right? Uh, by contamination. Foodborne is just 10%. Waterborne is, is low. Person to person spread contaminated hands to contaminated hands and it even gets aerosolized here is a, an article about a new zealand uh, an air new zealand plane where somebody threw up a sick passenger passed neurovirus to the crew not only did the crew that cleaned up the mess got sick but on every flight at least one or more crew members got sick with typical symptoms so even if you vomit into the bag you're aerosolizing it and you can infect a lot of people so it's another reason why uh, flying, not flying this year has been good, I think. So at least one cruise ship company, who I will not mention, calls, calls itself the happiest place on earth. I think not. I would not set foot on a cruise ship because they have outbreaks of neurovirus. Here are just some that have been recorded 
where in some cases we can see they're caused by norovirus, but there are other viruses that cause gastroenteritis, so can be others. Now, what is it with a cruise ship? Well, we track illness because it's, you know, you put 5,000 people on a tin can and you send them out into the ocean with food and infected people. It's a, it's a recipe. So we track it and we find outbreaks more quickly on cruise ships, a close living quarters, right? And new people. Every time you get a fresh set of people to be infected, uh, many cruise ship companies now are doing amazing things to prevent infections. They have mechanized hand washing stations. They have testing. They don't want to have their sh their crews canceled and have to give everybody their money back and come back and have to sterilize the ship. So they're they're really working hard to to fix it, and they've done a good job, I think. I still wouldn't take a cruise, nor would I eat the mints. When you leave the restaurant, don't touch those. Those are so contaminated with E. coli. Why? People go to the bathroom, they don't wash their hands, and they take a mint. And don't even take one if there's a wrapper on it. The wrapper's contaminated. I don't know what... Don't and You know what? If it's peanuts, don't take them either. Whatever's there. <laughs> wash your hands. This is what the CDC says. Rinse your fruits and vegetables. Cook your shellfish. Clean your surfaces. And if you're sick, don't prepare food for others. And finally, West Nile virus. We talked a little bit about this before. It's a flavivirus, isolated first in, in Uganda, the West Nile district, not Egypt. It was not isolated in, in anywhere near the Nile River, contrary to what this cartoonist thinks. It was absent from the Western Hemisphere until 1999 when it entered New York. People started getting encephalitis. The crows started dying Probably came from Israel. The New York isolate is identical to a virus from an Israeli goose. And it could have flown in an infected person. I think probably not because the viremia is not actually enough to give to a mosquito enough virus to spread to someone else. I don't know. Maybe a, a mosquito took a ride. It infects birds of all kinds. There's 37 different kinds of mosquitoes. There are other vertebrates. So pretty big host range. This is the host range of West Nile in, in green here. The transmission cycle, the natural cycle involves mosquitoes passing it among birds in nature. So this is the natural host, birds and mosquitoes. Humans and horses are incidental or accidental hosts. Mosquitoes bite us. They've taken a blood meal from a bird. They have reproduced the virus inside of them. They infect us or a horse and we get sick, West Nile disease, and we can get encephalitis. In fact, there's a vaccine for horses because racehorses are expensive and you don't want them to get encephalitis. Uh, so there's a West Nile vaccine for horses. Not yet for people. Horses are more expensive. The mosquitoes that transmit it to hu humans are called Culex species or Culicine mosquitoes. Incubation period. And 20 to 30% of infected people develop West Nile virus fever and the rest are asymptomatic. 80% of people have no symptoms. So again, this, this virus is delivered by a mosquito to you. You are a dead-end host. You are not spreading it to anyone else. Neither is the horse. If mosquitoes bite either you or the horse, they will not pick up enough virus to transmit. You're not the natural host. You don't have enough virus in your blood. Uh, so a lot of asymptomatic infections. But 1 in 150 people develop neuroinvasive disease. And that's bad. The virus is in your brain. Headache, ocular manifestations, muscle weakness, cognitive impairment, long-term cognitive issues. Even a polio-like flaccid paralysis, 10% of 
mortality. And over half of these people uh, develop long-term neurological sequelae. So uh, it is not a good idea to put yourself at risk for this. And this is present in many states in the U.S. because the culicine mosquitoes are widespread. They go probably north of Massachusetts. They're certainly in New York and New Jersey. So you have to be careful. Pathogenesis, right? The birds are the natural host. And mosquitoes accidentally bite. Well, they bite humans because they want a blood meal and, and no, no birds around, right? So a, a typical scenario is if the water's gone, if it's a dry season, the birds will go away. The mosquitoes, are, uh, what am I going to do? They bite people. <laughs> they give you the virus, reproduces in dendritic cells, gets into your lymph nodes, likes to reproduce in, in uh, lymphocytes. Uh, and spleen also with lots of lymphocytes as well. And that causes your West Nile uh, virus disease, the, the fever and so forth. And in a fraction of people, remember we talked about toll-like receptor 3 being responsible for sensing infection, releasing TNF-alpha, and that permeabilizes the blood-brain barrier and lets the virus into the brain where it can reproduce in neurons. And that's that's basically the pathogenesis. And And... Here's the numbers in the U.S. Now, from 99 when it first came in. Seven, 62 cases that year, seven deaths. And you can see the numbers vary. Some years we have a lot. Look at 10,000 cases in 2003 with 2,800 neuroinvasive cases and 260 deaths in 2019 lower. But I think a lot of the, the cycling depends on the weather conditions. We, we do track West Nile infections, the CDC tracks it. You can go to their West Nile site and look at disease by state. These are the last numbers. You can see the states with the most neuroinvasive disease, which reflects the overall burden. The dark states here, these are the ones with the, most of the mosquitoes. You know, we have a much lower burden here, but lots of mosquitoes in California. And it is a um, seasonal d disease. So these are cases reported to the CDC by week of illness, right? In the, the winter, <laughs> there's no... There are no cases. They start in June, more or less. They peak in the middle of the summer, and then uh, they go down in December. And the neuroinvasive disease increases with age. So this is a breakdown of neuroinvasive disease incidence per 100,000 with age. And you can see very little neuroinvasive disease at low ages. It begins to slowly increase until over 70. It, the incidence is quite a bit higher. So something about the immune senescence, I think, of... Aging makes you more susceptible to neuroinvasive disease. And how do you prevent this? Well, until we have a vaccine, and we don't have one yet, people are working on it. And who knows, maybe now we'll have an mRNA vaccine because we know mRNA vaccines work. Uh, these mosquitoes bite evening to morning. So, you know, during the day you don't have to worry, but if you're out in the evening, you should use either repellents or use screens or clothing that will prevent you from getting bitten. And uh, you, you can know where, uh, in what states of the U.S. you're at risk for being bitten by these mosquitoes. In fact, many localities have spraying programs to try and reduce the populations of these mosquitoes. And as I said, uh, human vaccines are in development. There are horse vaccines available because of the fatality in horses. I want to just make a few comments about viruses in the CNS, and then I want to talk briefly about SARS-CoV-2 as an acute infection. And we've talked today about three viruses that invade the CNS, 
poliovirus, measles virus, and West Nile virus. But all these viruses are effectively transmitted by shedding elsewhere. For example, uh, the gut, the respiratory tract, or by, or by mosquitoes. So getting into the CNS is a dead end in people for that virus. It cannot transmit to someone else once it enters the CNS. I, I view it as an accident of the pathogenesis, and it's not something that would be selected for, in my view. Transmission is selected for from host to host, but to get into the CNS is some kind of an accident. And I think any human virus that gets into the CNS is there by accident. And I think poliovirus is a great example where only 1% of infections cause paralysis, and that's an accident. And why that is, as I said, I think it has to do with innate immune responses. All right, let me, let me just talk a little bit about COVID-19 as an acute infection. This is clearly an acute infection. I've shown you, I think I've shown you this slide before. If not, here you go. Uh, here we're tracking um, viral RNA, the purple line. There's the exposure time, TE. And then we have symptom onset, TS. And you can see the viral titers peak. This would be in the upper tract at around the time of symptom onset. So you have an incubation period of 2 to 14 days. And then you have the viral symptom phase where you have the typical flu-like illness. And in, within seven days, the virus has is, is gone way down. This is the infectious level, the green line. So below the green, you're no longer infectious. So you're really only infectious a few days on either side of symptom onset. That's the acute infection, about a two-week disease period. And then you see later in infection, your antibody levels are rising. So these have no role in your recovery from infection but they will protect you against the next one, the memory cells. Of course, then in a certain number of people, maybe 10, 20%, you have this inflammatory disease, which may happen and may go on for weeks where virus is very low, viral RNA is very low, probably not much infectious virus in these patients, but they have inflammatory reactions, which we are not really understanding yet. They're caused by immune uh, overreaction. And these are the ones that can be fatal. So that's what I mean when I say an acute infection is kind of a gray area. We have this defined period of, of disease, uncomplicated COVID-19, and then you have complications, which I view this inflammatory phase. But there's no virus, so the, the, the infection is over. These are sequelae. Unfortunately, we now know there's long COVID, right? And so that is, again, not an infectious period, but it's beyond the original acute infection. So here we have a breakdown of um, sequelae according to age. So, you know, asymptomatic and mild disease, about 80%. And I think asymptomatic is about 20%, but we'll have a better idea of that later. And these are the, um, you know, 80% are, are these either asymptomatic or flu-like illness. And then depending on your age, uh, you know, you can have severe disease, 14% and 5% can lead to death. So this is the acute infection here. These are sequelae and they're not, but it's not a persistent infection because virus is no longer there. And long COVID, of course, people in any of these phases can develop long-term symptoms. These can involve the respiratory system, the cardiac system, the gastrointestinal system, the skin, and the CNS. We don't know how long they go on, but some people at four months still have loss of smell and taste, which started here in the early onset. So it's an acute infection, but it's very unusual, obviously. The last thing I want to show you is uh, periods of shedding and transmissibility comparing influenza with SARS and SARS-CoV-2. 
So we've talked about influenza. We're looking at virus shedding, infectiousness in this graph. And symptom onset would be zero here, the red bar in this in this bar above here. So you have a, an incubation period for flu, two days or so. Symptom onset coinciding with shedding peak and then a rapid decline. I've shown you this before in an earlier slide. Uh, SARS-1, SARS-2003, uh, four to five day incubation period, and the shedding peaks uh, at about the time of symptom onset here. And, and at that point, over half of cases are, are hospitalized. And so they were in a area that could be contained. We could limit transmission. And that's why that outbreak was uh, ended after 8,000 cases, because when People were shedding at the peak. They were at the most serious point of disease. You can, this is the incubation period again in the in the blue, and then the, the shedding starts. But the symptom onset is not, the peak of symptom onset is not until about 10 or so. And then we have SARS-CoV-2, where I said the incubation period is about 2 to 14 days. And then the symptom onset correlates with the peak of shedding, and then a rapid fall off within, say, seven to 10 days of virus and then end of symptoms in most of the uncomplicated COVID. So those are, that's why these are acute infections. They're all resolved. The incubation periods vary. The shedding periods vary. But, you know, in the majority of cases, the, the infection is over. And, you know, the, the symptoms that linger, the long COVID and so forth, the complications of flu, it's, it's apart from the acute phase. Now, that's very different from persistent infections, where, as I said, the virus is with you for your lifetime, essentially, and you may have bouts of reproduction and disease. We'll talk about persistent infections. 